Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to read for this first reading through to uh, verse 10 of chapter 8. The days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Romalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. And if you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then. O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee is in the land of Assyria and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts and rocks and in all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for a fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it on common characters belonging to Maher Shalahashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, 
the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Romalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Okay, we're going to pick up the rest of the passage from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 to chapter 9, verse 7. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you could turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, just to the start of that huge reading that we did. Um, If you're here and as we were reading that, you're thinking, what on earth was that all about? Um, Do not worry, you're not alone. Uh, I thought that the first time I looked at this and was told I had to preach on this massive chunk of scripture. Um, but my task this morning will be really to, to take that long passage, that long message of Isaiah, and to simplify it, to convey its main point, and to condense it into about 30 minutes. It's quite a task, um, but actually it's easier than it looks because there is one big theme that runs throughout those chapters that we read, one big um, application And that is, will we trust in God during times of crisis? That's the big application. That's the big uh, question that has been posed by Isaiah throughout those chapters. Will we trust in God during times of crisis when our backs are against the wall, when our life is going down the drain? Are we willing to trust in God and the promises that he has made? So that's what it means for us. But before we look at what it means for us, we need to understand what it meant for Isaiah's original hearers. We need to understand what the original context was. So I'm just going to bring up a map to try and remind you uh, of the context. Uh, Isaiah prophesied he was a prophet, which meant that he was the mouthpiece of God. Um, And he prophesied around 700 years before Jesus Christ. And he prophesied to these two nations, Judah and Israel. Both these nations were considered to be um, God's people. And the basic message that Isaiah had for both Judah and for both Israel is that they will be destroyed because of their rebellion and their refusal to trust and follow God. That's his message, that judgment is coming for Israel and for Judah. But, Isaiah says, out of their destruction, from the ashes of their destruction, will come a small, faithful remnant of people. And from them will come a king who will save the entire world. So these two nations are going to face God's judgment, but from their destruction will come a small faithful remnant, and from that remnant will come a king that will save the entire world. Now, so far as we've kind of looked through the book of Isaiah, we've been seeing what's wrong, why this judgment's coming. We've kind of got a big overture picture of everything that's wrong with the people of Israel, of everything that's wrong with the people of Judah. But what's going to happen now in chapter 7 is Isaiah's going to focus in through history. He's going to 
stop giving us the wide-angled lens and focus in on particularly the nation of Judah. So chapter 7, chapters 8, and chapters 9 are all directed towards this small nation here, the nation of Judah. And this is the, this is the trouble that Judah finds itself in uh, during the time of Isaiah. Uh, the king of Judah was a man called Ahaz. Um, I spent four years doing a degree in animation. This is all I've got to show for it. Um, so this is it. This is great. The king of uh, Judah was a man called Ahaz. He was not a good guy at all. Um, and the king of Israel was a man called Pekah. And to the north of Israel is this nation, the nation of Syria. Uh, and they had a king called Rezin. This, these are some of the, the names that we'll see in Isaiah chapter 7. Um, Pekah, rather confusingly, is sometimes just called the son of Ramalia. And what's happening is that Israel, the brother nation of Judah, has formed an alliance with the nation of Syria. So Pekah has formed an alliance with Rezin, and the two of them are seeking to attack Judah, to attack God's city, Jerusalem, contained within Judah, and to get rid of Ahaz. To the north of Syria, you can see I've just put up there Assyria. It's different to Syria. Um, it's important to, to see that Assyria was like the big superpower of the time, and they come into play later on in chapter 7. But this is the, uh, the problem that Ahaz is facing. He is facing a threat from both Israel and Syria. This is what's happening in Isaiah chapter 7. This is basically just a visual representation of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. So you can put the slide away. Ahaz, the nation of Judah, They are in a time of crisis. So the question is, who will they trust in this time of crisis? How will they respond to this time of crisis? Now, I've got four points in your service sheet um, that I think will be helpful just to, to navigate through this massive but wonderful chunk of Scripture. First point, then, we see the wrong response of Ahaz and Judah. Fear and faith in men. We see that in verse 1 to 13 of chapter 7. So they've got this threat. They've got the Syrians. They've got the Israelites. They've formed this alliance. They're seeking to wipe out Judah. And how does Ahaz and Judah feel about this? Verse 2, I love love how it's phrased. This is one of the great things about Isaiah. You get really vivid pictures of what people are feeling. Uh, Verse 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is just another term for Israel, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So in other words, they're scared. They are terrified. So God sends in Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz. And Isaiah comes to to Ahaz and says, look, be careful, Ahaz. Stop panicking. Don't be afraid. These two nations are nothing more than smoldering stumps of firebrands. In other words, they are just like the leftover bits of wood after a campfire. There's no threat. There's no fire. There's no spark to them. They say, verse 6, that they will come in. They say that they will, they will get rid of Judah, that they will overthrow Ahaz, and they will put uh, this guy, the son of Tabeel, as a kind of puppet king over Judah. That's what they say. But this is what God says, verse 7, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. God goes on, for the head of Syria is Damascus, it's just a city. The head of Syria is just a city. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Rezin's just a man. The head of this great nation that you fear is just a man. 
And within 65 years, Ephraim or Israel, well, they're going to be destroyed anyway. Because the head of Ephraim is Samaria, just a city. And the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia, this guy Pekah, just a man. They're just men. And who are they to contend with God? And then at the end of verse 9, here we get really the key message for Ahaz. It's kind of the key point of this, this whole section of Isaiah. Actually, it's probably one of the key applications for the whole book of Isaiah. Love this verse. Verse 9b, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Underline that verse, highlight it, put a star next to it, do what you need to do to to mark that verse. It's so key. Ahaz needs to, to stop fearing in the human powers and authorities that are threatening him. Why? Because God is on his side. This is God's call to Ahaz. Look, come to me, trust in me. Verse 9 is actually a, a clever wordplay in Hebrew, and some of the commentators have, have tried to reword it to convey this across. Hold God in doubt, then you won't hold out. Unsure, insecure. The message is the same. Without a strong faith in God and his word, life will fall apart. If you're not standing firm in God, then when difficulties or trials come, they will knock you down. But Ahaz, King Ahaz, and the people of Judah, they are deaf to this message. We've seen this all throughout Isaiah. Isaiah is constantly warning people of the judgment to come, but they are deaf to it. You know, Isaiah says to him, uh, the Lord says to Um, through Isaiah to Ahaz, verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God and let it be as deep as Sheol, let it be as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. In other words, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you. Trust me. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds very pious and religious. But behind these words lies a faithless heart. Do you know what Ahaz did? You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 16. It's worth jotting down uh, to get the context of this. Ahaz neglected Isaiah's message and he stole money from the temple of God and used it to bribe the Assyrians, that mighty army that was way to the north. The Assyrians were like this global superpower of the time. He used it to bribe the king of Assyria so that he could get help from Assyria to wipe out Syria and to wipe out Israel. He didn't trust God at all. Judah didn't trust God. They ignored him. They feared men and they trusted in men. Oh yes, they claimed to be followers of God, but now that they're in a crisis, they don't want this this help that they can't see. They want something that's more real and more tangible. They want the mighty Assyrians to come to their aid to help them. Their faith in God is seen for what it really is. Nothing at all. If you're not firm in the faith, then you will not be firm at all. What will we do when we are hit with times of crisis and times of trouble? You know, God often takes us into times of of real suffering, into times of real crisis, as a means of showing whether our faith in Jesus is genuine or not. The Apostle Peter says that the sufferings and trials we face as Christians like fire. 
But our faith is like gold that passes through that fire and will be refined and made purer. You see, Ahaz, Judah, they had all the, the talk, and you could walk the walk. They were God's people, remember? This is not some foreign pagan nation. This is people who claim to be followers of God. This is God's church, but they had no trust in God. And I fear that that could be the case for many in the church. Well, we, we say we trust God, but the question is, do we live as if we trust God? Do we trust in our financial security? If we can save enough money, then we'll be fine when troubles hit. We'll be fine if there's any difficulties that we may have. As long as we can have a financially secure life, we trust in our employment. If we have that particular job, then then life will be easy. We trust in our relationships. If I have that person in my life, I'll be able to survive whatever difficulties may come my way. God is there, yes, but God is just pushed to the margins. He's just a spoke in the wheel of our lives, not the controlling axis. People, things, they become more important. They become the basis for our security. Behind the pious language is a faithless heart. And as verse 13 states, it is wearisome to God to live life as if God's not in control, but we are. And such a persistent refusal from Ahaz and from the people of Judah was only going to result in one thing, and that was judgment. Second point, Emmanuel, a sign of judgment for the faithless. The judgment that God describes really begins in verse 14 of chapter 7, and it goes all the way through to verse 10 of chapter 8. And look at what the instrument of God's judgment will be. How's God going to judge Ahaz for his lack of faith, for um, his faithlessness in him? End of verse 17. This is the instrument of God's justice. The king of Assyria. You see, God says to Ahaz, okay, you want Assyria? Well, I'll, I'll give you Assyria. And Assyria did come, And Assyria did wipe out Syria. Assyria did wipe out Israel, completely eradicated them. But Assyria did not stop there. Assyria invaded the land of Judah and absolutely desecrated it. One of the commentators said that Ahaz calling on Assyria to help take out the Syrians and the Israelites is like a mouse calling on a cat to take out two, a mouse calling on a cat to take out two rats. Isaiah himself, he gives kind of very vivid pictures of the kind of judgment that will come with the Assyrians. In verse 20, Assyria is compared to a razor that God will use to shave Judah. Uh, shaving in the ancient world was a, was a kind of form of humiliation. He will shave the heads and the hair of their feet. I, I don't know if they're hobbits in Judah or not, but the, the idea is that, that all their hair will be shaved from them. They'll be humiliated. But notice that the king of Assyria is just the razor. The one who is humiliating them is God. It is God who is in control. Chapter 8, verse 5. There's another illustration that, that God uses where he says that the coming of the Assyrians will be like a flood that will overwhelm Syria, that will overwhelm Israel, but will come and it will hit Judah 
And Judah will be caught up in the tide of this flood till the waters rise to its neck and it struggles for breath and air. Powerful images of God's judgment that will come to King Ahaz, that will come to Judah. And all this will be marked by a sign. A sign that shows the the futility of human powers. A A sign that seems weak, but shows the wisdom and power of God. A sign that will be nothing more than the birth of a child. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew term and it means literally God with us. So the coming of this child, the coming of Emmanuel will mark judgment for these people. So who, who is this child? Who is this Emmanuel? Well, I think there's two answers to this um, that it's important for us to get our heads around. It seems that this child is Isaiah's own son who's mentioned in verse 3 of chapter 8. Check this out for a name. Verse 3, call his name Maher Shalahashbaz. Sounds like a cool Klingon name, um, but I don't suggest you call your child it. He must have got called Baz for short by his mates. There's no way that his mates would have called him that. But it's this guy, Maher Shalahashbaz. I've had practice saying it. It's this guy who is, his birth will mark the downfall of Syria. His birth will mark the downfall of Israel. His birth will mark the judgment of Judah. See that in verse 4? Notice how verse 4 seems to match up with what's said of Emmanuel in verse 16 of chapter 7. However, there must be something more than just Isaiah's son, Baz. Because we read in verse 14 of chapter 7, first of all, that the sign that's coming will be that this child will be born to a virgin. Masher, Maher Shalahashbaz is not born of a virgin. Isaiah makes that clear. And also, Emmanuel, the description of him, which we see later on in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, it's the same child. The description of him goes way above and beyond Isaiah's son. There we see that he is described as some sort of divine, eternal ruler. You see, the real fulfillment of this sign would come 700 years later in a stable in Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus Christ. That's why if you were to read Matthew's gospel and look at the account he gives of Jesus' birth, he quotes from Isaiah 7.14 to say that this is the fulfillment of it. You see, Baz is kind of a short-term fulfillment of verse 14. It's kind of God's way of saying, look, you can trust me. Let me give you a sign right now to show you that this will happen. But Jesus is the ultimate one that this is pointing to. Jesus came, first of all, he came into human history, Emmanuel, literally Emmanuel, God with us. He came, first of all, to rescue us, to save us, to take the punishment for our sins. But after he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, the Bible's clear, Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, it will be to bring judgment upon this world. When Emmanuel returns, it will be to execute judgment on those who refuse God. And how does God execute his judgment? By doing the same thing as he's done here in Isaiah 7, by giving 
the people exactly what they want. You want a life without God, then God will give you a life without him. It's poetic justice. But it's terrifying because God will not be opposed. Emmanuel is not opposed. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 8 make that clear. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel. Having an army invading your land is scary, but to have God himself against you, that is far more terrifying. But what we see all throughout Isaiah, we see it all throughout, is that God never wants to punish his people. He is so reluctant to judge his people. He is calling his people to stop their unfaithful ways and to come back to him, to trust him. Isaiah is saying to us, come to God, come to Jesus and trust in him. You will be saved. Third point, the right response then of Isaiah and the faithful remnant. See in the first section that that the wrong response of Ahaz and Judah is fear and faith in men. And Emmanuel is given as a sign of judgment for their faithlessness. But now we're going to see the right response. And Isaiah puts himself forward as a kind of model example with what to do, how to stand firm in the faith. In times of crisis, Isaiah and and the small remnant that he represents, and they have fear and faith in God. And I think in these verses, verse 11 to 12, we can draw out three very practical principles for us today as Christians about how we can stand firm in the faith when we are hit with times of trouble, when we are hit hit with times of crisis. They are firstly, fear God. Secondly, wait for God. And thirdly, inquire of God. Fear God, wait for God, inquire of God. That's what Isaiah says. Firstly then, fear God. Isaiah writes, verse 12. Do not call conspiracy, all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So Isaiah is saying, look, don't fear men. Don't fear these armies. Don't fear the king of Assyria. Don't live in this constant state of paranoia, looking for conspiracies to see who's working with who. Rather, as Christians, there is a fear that we are to have that is good and that is right, and that is a fear of God. So it's interesting. He's not saying, don't be afraid. He's saying, yeah, have a fear, But make sure that that fear is directed appropriately. Make sure that that fear is directed towards God. You see, to fear a powerful army over fearing God, it's like fearing a kitten over a lion. Fearing God for us today is not about fearing his judgment, which as Christians we don't need to fear, because Jesus has removed God's anger and his judgment against us. But fearing God... It's about having a right understanding of who he is in relation to everything else. Isaiah says that that to fear God is to honor God as holy. In other words, it's to set God apart. It's about seeing God in the right perspective. There's no one more terrifying. There's no one more powerful. There's no one more ferocious than God himself. He is scary. He is not tame. But he is good, to quote C.S. Lewis. And he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But we've got to get who God is right in our heads if we are to stand firm in the faith 
when we are hit with times of trouble. I'm convinced that one of the big reasons we don't trust God enough as Christians is because we have far too big a view of ourselves and far too small a view of him. Isaiah's challenge to us and the faithful remnant is that we dare to treat God as God. Don't live as if he's not in control of our lives. Don't view him as if he's kind of weak and out there on the margins, if he's helpless, as we need to do things in order to get out of these times of trouble and crisis. Fear God. And if we do, Isaiah says he will be a sanctuary, a place of refuge when the storms of life hit. If not, you can see in verse 14, then it seems he seems to be saying that eventually you'll find that God's just getting in the way. He's a stumbling block for your life. So firstly, fear God. Secondly, wait for God. Verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Wait for God. That's what he's going to do. That's what the remnant are going to do. We will wait for God. Waiting for God doesn't mean doing nothing. But it means living your life ever mindful that whatever befalls you, both good and bad, is under the sovereign control of God. It's about submitting your fears and your worries into God's hands. It means patiently persisting with God, trusting in his sovereign plan, trusting in his promises. It means that even in the darkest moments, you will not turn away, but you will draw ever closer to him. For he is your only hope. Everything else that we use for security and trust to help us through life's difficulties is too temperamental and fleeting. Here we have an unchanging rock. You see, to follow God, to have faith in God, doesn't mean your life's going to be brilliant. In fact, it might make your life harder. It's not what God promises. But as we wait for God, we trust him. We trust in the truth of of promises like Romans 8, where God says that he will ultimately use all the things in our life for our ultimate good. Even if we can't see it now, we will wait for God. We will trust in what he has said. Fear God, wait for God. Finally, Isaiah says, inquire of God. Verse 19. When they say to you, that's people of Judah, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, It is because they have no dawn. You see, when we're hit with a time of crisis and suffering as Christians, our first port of call should be God. Now, that sounds quite obvious. But for many of us, it's not. It's to look elsewhere, to try and find a solution somewhere else. But Isaiah is saying, why why won't you inquire of God? A good gauge as to whether or not we are trusting in God or whether or not we've just pushed him to the periphery of our lives is to look at how we pray. There's a a minister in Dundee called Robert Moy McShane and he used to say that what I am on my knees is all I am before God. In other words, behind closed doors when there's no one there and I'm on my knees praying to God, that reveals to me what my relationship with God is really like. And if there's little or no prayer, in your life, 
And you're not trusting God. You're not trusting that he's in control. You're trusting, I would say, probably in yourself. Inquire of him, Isaiah says. Inquire of God and listen to him. God has spoken to us very clearly in his word. He has given us this, the Bible. Isaiah calls it the testimony, the teaching. He says to to the remnant, flee to the testimony, flee to the teaching. Judah, what what they did, they, they refused to listen to God's word and instead they consulted these weird occultish practices that, that would chirp and mutter. They focused on the incomprehensible language of these pagan methods and neglected the fact that actually God had spoken to them. They had the word of God. It wasn't as complete as what we have now, but they had it and it was clear. But they chose rather to look at these weird occultish practices that chirp and mutter and ignore the clarity of God's word. Why is it then at times of crisis we will look down so many avenues for help but often neglect looking to what God has said? It's not that other things are wrong. We need counsel. We need wisdom and comfort from others. It's just that that our ultimate hope and our ultimate security is found in here. We need to be in God's word. We may not get the answers we want, but the Bible gives us the answers we need. The Bible doesn't explain why we go through certain hard times in life, but it does show us the God who is behind the hard times. And that is what we need to know if we are to stand firm in the faith and not fall daily to be in God's word, inquiring of him. See, Isaiah and the faithful remnant They represent the model of how we are to stand firm. They're not like Ahaz and Judah. They do what Ahaz and Judah should have done. We are to place our fear and faith in God alone. And the God of the Bible does not believe in blind faith. So he has given us a sign. A sign that we can trust him. A sign that represents all our hope as Christians. And again, it's a child it's Emmanuel. So we see in verse 1 to 7 of chapter 9. This is the final point. Emmanuel, a sign of hope for the faithful. We'll bring this all into land with this. See, there's a choice that we are left with in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. Will we trust God and be in the light? Or will we not trust God and be in darkness? That's what he's describing at the start, at the end of chapter 8. That rejection of God means to walk about, to stumble about in the darkness of doubt and confusion, not knowing what life's about, not knowing where to go. And when the crisis hits, it will cause us to fall. You see, the light, the hope of all who trust God is this king described in Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. That is our hope. That is what we hold on to. This child verse 6. Again, God's wisdom is displayed in apparent weakness. The folly of human powers is exposed with the arrival of a child. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God's overthrow of evil, God's bringing in in a kingdom of joy and peace, our hope as Christians will come at the sign of a child. This is not Maher Shalahashbaz. This is Jesus. 
Jesus, born as a child to the Virgin Mary. Jesus, the Son of God, given to rescue us sinners. Jesus is, is the motivation for our faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the joy and the hope of our faith. That's what we hold on to. He has come into human history like a shaft of light piercing through the darkness of evil, of doubt and confusion. The perfect revelation of God. This is the king of kings. This is the one who governs the universe. This is the one whom Isaiah says the government of the world will be upon his shoulders. This is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is Emmanuel. God with us. That was Judah's hope. That remnant, they held on to that. That this king, Emmanuel, would come. That this kingdom would be established. And that is our hope today. That is what we must fix our eyes on. Jesus, the wonderful counselor who offers wisdom and insight. We listen to him. The mighty God who defeats his enemies. We take refuge in him. The everlasting father. King of eternal love, we enjoy him. The Prince of Peace, one who reconciles us back to God, even though we were once his enemies, we welcome his rule over our lives. Isaiah, the faithful remnant, unlike Ahaz, held on to the promise of this king and the kingdom he would bring. And we do too. We've seen it fulfilled partially. We know that this happened. Jesus did come. Emmanuel did come to earth. But like I was saying earlier, we are waiting, like Isaiah, like the remnant, for Emmanuel to come back. We are waiting for when verses 2 to 7 of chapter 9 will be fully realized. We are waiting for the verse 3 of Isaiah 9. Where a great crowd of people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne of Jesus and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. We are waiting for the perfected joy of verse 3, where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes as sin and death is destroyed forever. We are waiting for the peace and the rest of verses 4 and 5, when Jesus will overthrow Satan and evil forever, and there will be no more war, no more threat of violence or pain or suffering. We wait for Emmanuel. That is our hope, and we know that that wait is not in vain. We know because of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is ferociously passionate to see his people saved. That's why you and I are here today. Let me ask you, Chalmers Church, is this what we long for? Is this what we hope for? the return of the king, when Jesus will come and fix everything that is broken with this world and everything that is broken with us. Because if that's our hope, we will be firm in the faith. That's why we cry with the early church, come now, Lord Jesus. That's why we say, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know that we can trust you, that we can have our faith and our hope in you because you have given us a sign. You have given us Emmanuel, 
Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given to us sinners. Thank you, Lord, that he came, that he died, that he rose again. Thank you that he paid the punishment for all that is wrong in our lives, for all our wicked rebellion, so we could be free of it and brought back to you, brought back to these great promises of Isaiah 9, of peace and joy and restoration. Thank you that our king has achieved that on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation was dependent upon your zeal and not our faithfulness, which is so often waning. Help us then, O Lord, to stand firm in the faith. Help us so we will not fall. Help us to hold on to Emmanuel. And Lord, we pray, as the church throughout the ages has always prayed, come now, Lord Jesus. Come, Emmanuel. Come and fix our broken world. Come and wipe away the tears. Come and restore the hope that we long for. In his name, amen.